0: Thanks, Vance. I wonder if we put a complaint box out in the hall today, if any complaints would go in that box after listening to Vance's great story. Only God is great. This is the opening line from a funeral sermon delivered by Jean-Baptiste Maison, pardon my French, I've been practicing a lot. He delivered this at the funeral of Louis XIV, king of France. Louis XIV was crowned monarch of France at the age of five. And he served in that capacity for 72 years, the longest-running reign of any monarch in modern European history that is up until recently with Queen Elizabeth. He was a quintessential narcissist, declaring himself to be the great monarch, or the sun king, and he's famous for declaring about himself, I am the state. But all this came to a dramatic end in 1715 when King Louis XIV was forced to abdicate his throne simply because he died. He planned his own funeral and he made himself the centerpiece of it. He had commissioned a solid gold casket rimmed with jewels. And for the funeral service, all the lights in the chapel were to be off, save for one candle above his casket. And when it came time for Bishop Maceon to stand up and give his eulogy, to the surprise of everybody, he walked up to that candle and blew it out. And then walked to the pulpit and delivered those four simple words only god is great the author of the psalm that vance and i just quoted would agree with mason this is one of the rare psalms that doesn't tell us who the author is but his strong connection with the psalm that precedes it psalm 32 which was written by david lends us to believe that this Psalm, too, was written by King David. In fact, notice the the last verse of Psalm 32 and the first verse of Psalm 33, how they are in parallel with each other. Now, Psalm 32 is one of the penitential psalms. And it's the only, of all the penitential psalms, it's the only one that actually looks back and sees the after-effects of God's forgiveness. Note how the psalm begins, describing the person who has experienced God's forgiveness as being blessed. And then this is contrasted in verses 3 and 4 with the agony that David was in before he confessed his sin to God. And this experience of suffering... In his sin is followed by the blessings that come from being forgiven when he repented and confessed his sin. And David then instructs his audience in verses 8 through 10 to follow his example and describes what will happen if they do, and by contrast, what will happen if they don't. And all of this is capped off by the final verse with the encouragement For all who are righteous, that is all who have confessed their sins, who have repented of their sins and received God's forgiveness, praise the Lord. And so we come to our text, Psalm 33, which is the expansion of Psalm 32. And the theme of this psalm is found in the second half of verse 1. It is fitting for the upright to praise him or as I have summarized as a theme for this message, your best life is a praising life. Let's look at Psalm 33 and and see why he can say our best life is a praising life. Right at the top, verses 1 through 3, we have the call to praise. This is where we find our theme. Notice that All the descriptors of this praise in these verses are for a joyful, exuberant kind of praise. Whenever my black brothers and sisters from our sister church, Mount Zion, come here to worship, or when Pastor Levi comes to preach, or or even uh, the Reverend Dr. Royce Evans last week, I always kind of feel sorry for them. Because our experience of worship Is not their experience of worship. Uh, They are exuberant in their worship. And I have to confess, when I go to Mount Zion to preach, I'm up there on the platform for the whole service. And I don't have any rhythm. (laughs) So I have to look out and find someone that I can try and follow along with. And my kids are out there just laughing at me. (laughs) because they know pretty soon he's going to mess up and he's going to be an embarrassment to himself. But I don't care, I just give it my best. And even that is not as exuberant as the worshipers in, in the room. I kind of expect Dr., uh, Reverend Dr. Royce Evans last week when he was preaching here had a similar experience to uh, Pastor Levi when he preached, I believe it was last June, and I asked him what it was like to not get that congregational response because when I preach at Mount Zion whatever I give I get right back and he said there you go (laughs) and he said he said Tim I've been preaching on the live stream the last three months I'm used to not getting anything back (laughs) now I'm not saying that we need to be something that we're not when I go to Mount Zion and preach there I I still preach like Tim Van Lowe maybe Tim Van Lowe on steroids but Tim Van Lowe But I know you got it in you. I'm from Minnesota, land of Scandinavians and Germans, Norwegians, pretty restrained people. And yet back in 1987 and 1991 when the Minnesota Twins won the World Series, the Metrodome was so loud that they measured it. The decibels were at the same level as an airplane taking off as measured on the tarmac. I wasn't able to go to any of those World Series games, but I went to the first game of the season right after the first World Series, spring 1988. And the Metrodome was packed and the Homer Hankies were flying. And it was so loud I couldn't hear my brother yelling in my ear. It's exuberant praise. And I'm telling you, if if restrained Norwegians and Scandinavians and Germans can get that way at a baseball game, we can get that a little bit when we come in to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But David doesn't just focus on the emotional aspect of praise. He zeroes in on the content. and He's going to develop this more in verses Four through 19, but notice what he says about here in verse 3. Sing to him a new song. This phrase pops up in other places of scripture. It pops up in the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible at the end of time. Revelation, 5, 9, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 puts us in the throne room of heaven where the four living creatures and the 24 elders are falling down before the lamb, each one with a harp, each one with a bowl of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. And they are singing, the verse says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. They are singing a new song. Then in chapter 14 and verse 3, we have 144,000 on Mount Zion with the Lamb and singing before the throne and before the four creatures and the 24 elders. And what are they singing? A new song. Friends, you can read through the Bible from cover to cover and you will find the story of God celebrated over and over and over again through a retelling of it. Many of these retellings are in Psalms, but even in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, you have Peter retelling the story in his sermon on Pentecost on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 7, Stephen retelling the story ends up getting him stoned. Acts chapter 13 and beyond, Paul retelling the story in sermon after sermon after sermon. The Jewish people love to rehearse what God has done. And as they did so, they would view it as if they were actually entering into history in order to experience events as if they were happening at that moment. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 through 33 famously says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail they are new every morning great is your faithfulness friends the very fact that you were able to wake up this morning get yourself here to this room or in front of the live stream to participate in this worship service it's simply because God's compassions, his mercies, are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Friends, your best life is a praising life. And the good news is that everybody can have a praising life. Vance is exhibit A in that department. Appraising life is not dependent on your circumstances. Appraising life is not dependent on your health. Appraising life is not dependent upon your bank account. Appraising life is is not dependent on your career path. Appraising life is not dependent on where you live. Appraising life is not dependent on any of these circumstances. It's not dependent on who you voted for president. It's not dependent on your opinion on COVID. It's not not dependent on anything. You can have a praising life. Your best life is a praising life. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. Church, praise looks good on you. Your best life is a praising life. That's the call to praise. What about the cause to praise? a cause for praise. The psalmist expands on his call to praise by pointing out Two characteristics of God that are praiseworthy. First of all, God is the creator. God's words and his actions are closely tied together in all of scripture and and no less in, in these six verses that we have before us. The Lord of creation is the Lord of revelation. We wouldn't even know that he was the creator if it wasn't for his word. And so in verses 4-5 4-5 through five, the psalmist tells us why we can believe his word God's word is trustworthy and true because God is trustworthy and true what he says he does and what he does is always good and just and loving the God who speaks is the God who acts his actions spring from his words When we think of all God's creative acts, we can go microscopic and look at the minutia of things in in life. Or we can go telescopic and look out into the heavens, which is what the psalmist chooses to do. He doesn't have a microscope for that option because he's writing this in 1000 BC. And so he looks to the heavens with his naked eye And as he looks to the heavens, he recalls the creation story from Genesis chapter 1. And he says, by the word of the Lord. I I see. I'm sorry, I got lost my place here. But he says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and their starry host by the breath of his mouth. It reminds me of the Genesis passage, Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. Like a throwaway line. <laughs> After making these two great lights. Oh yeah. He also made the stars. Five simple words to describe this amazing act. Poof. All the stars, planets, and galaxies in the universe. Which one moment before didn't exist. And now instantaneously appear. By the breath of his mouth. God is praiseworthy because he is The creator. But God is praiseworthy also because he is the savior. The key verse in this section is verse 12. And I don't know if you noticed, but when Vance was quoting, he paused right before this verse and he said it with emphasis. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he chose for his inheritance. This psalm was Written to a collective group of people. God's chosen nation. The people of Israel. When God delivered the descendants of Abraham out of Egypt. They had grown from 75 people in Jacob's family. To now over probably 2 million people. That he is rescuing. And he said this to them. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. For you are a people... Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And as already noted, this theme is repeated throughout the Bible as the Jewish people would rehearse this story over and over and over and over again, reminding them that they were God's chosen. People, all the way to Paul himself. In Acts 13, that sermon that he preached on his first missionary journey, the first sermon recorded on that missionary journey, there in Acts chapter 13. And what does he do for an opening line? Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. Later, Paul would write to Gentile Christians in the church he started in Ephesus and tell them that now they too are included with God's chosen people. This is what it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household. On what basis can Paul include Gentiles with this chosen people that he called out of Egypt? Well, Paul addressed that. Same chapter, verses 13 through 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us, made the two groups one and has destroyed the, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus is the link. He's the one that brings us into the family of God, into his chosen people to receive all the blessings that come from being in that kind of relationship with God. Peter would pick up on this theme and tell his Gentile audience in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare, here's our word, the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now we as believers can look back on this psalm through Jesus and see that the promises within apply to us as well. So notice what David says about God's providence in Psalm 33, 10 through 11. I love these words, foils, thwarts. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm through all generations. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Here in America, we are divided politically, socially, racially, Genderly, Look it up, it's a word. And the power shifts back and forth from one to the other. But behind it all is the providential hand of God. Plans and purposes not in accordance with God's plans and purposes are inevitably bound to fall apart. That's just the way it is. We know who wrote the end of the book, We know how it ends. God wins. God is not some absentee landlord oblivious to what is happening in his creation. The psalmist writes in verses 13 through 15, from heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches All who live on earth, he who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No one gets away with anything. God sees it all. One day, everyone will give an account to God. So don't be worried by those who seem to be so powerful. The psalmist addresses that as well in verses 16 through 19. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse's vain hope for deliverance, despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Earthly power is no match for the breath of God. No matter how powerful those in the world might be, they are no match for Almighty God. So we have cause for praise. Our best life, your best life, is a praising life. He concludes these last three verses. With the congregation, describing the congregation of praise, describing us sitting here today. And these last verses end on a much less exuberant note than how the psalm began. At the onset, we have music and singing and shouting and exuberant expressions of praise. It's like fans packed into the stands of a stadium cheering on their team and celebrating with them after they win the championship and storming the, the field or the court and hugging the players. That's verses 1 through 3. But in these last three verses, we see a more contemplative approach to praise. We, we, we read words like wait, hope, trust. It's true we find the word rejoice, but it's, it's our hearts That are rejoicing. This is making the Germans and the Scandinavians and the Norwegians a little happy. I can just sit and rejoice in my heart. It's a deep seated joy that doesn't necessarily express itself in the same way as the exuberant joy of verses one through three. In other words, there's a place for both kinds of praise. See, I'm letting you off the hook the exciting and the loud and the thoughtful and the quiet. And so the psalm ends on this thoughtful, quiet note, note of contemplation, one of resolve, determination. The psalmist has decided something. And he's decided it for all of us. Note that the first three verses are aimed at God's people. They are commands that he is giving to us. This is the call to praise. Then the next 16 verses are descriptions about God. The pronouns have shifted from you To he. Now these last three verses we see another shift. The psalmist goes from he to we. From your to our. The psalmist goes from describing God to describing the congregation of praisers. You see, we aren't in this all by ourselves. That's why we come together. And God has put us together with his people. Just like God chose his original people in the Old Testament. Now, God is putting together a congregation of people called the church. And how do we respond to our creator, Savior God? We wait in hope. We act in trust. Our hearts rejoice. We are praising people. We are living the best possible life Because it is the life God created us to live, one that is characterized first and foremost by praising the Lord. As the psalmist said in verse one, it is fitting for the upright to praise him. Not only does God deserve your praise, but praising is the best way for you to live your life. It's a win win. God gets what he deserves, and we experience life at its best. Your best life is a praising kind of life. Praise looks good on you. If you're here today or watching from home, and you have not yet received God's gift of salvation through Jesus, then your first step to a praising life is described at the beginning of Psalm 32. Jesus calls you to repent of your sins. Turn and put your trust in him. Commit your life to Jesus Christ. A life lived apart from God, taking ownership upon yourself and taking credit for all you do may sound like a life of freedom and everlasting joy. But in reality, as the psalmist describes it in Psalm 32, it is burdensome, And it's miserable. It can never, ever satisfy. As much as we long to be in charge and be praised, we are not created to exist like that. In fact, it's a very definition of sin. Romans 3 23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We were created to give Him glory. And when we don't, it is sin. Praising is the essence of glorifying God. In that respect, it's the opposite of sinning. The terrible news is that we are born into this world selfish, inwardly focused, and bent away from a life of praising God. And the worst news is that there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. But the best news that God can. And God sent his son Jesus into this world to live the life that you could not live and die the death you deserve to die. And by simply repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you can begin your best life. Praising him. Heavenly Father, I pray that if there is someone here today who has not yet repented of their rebellion against you and tried to live their own life, Lord, I pray today would be the day, whether they're watching at home or sitting in this room, that they confess their sins and accept the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers. Lord, for those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. We confess that too often, our life is not a praising life. It's more like a complaining life. And as we look around, there is certainly a lot to complain about. Forgive us for that, Lord. For the looking around rather than the looking up and seeing your mercies, your compassions that are new every morning. Lord, I pray that you would Make us into praising people. Living the praising life that you've called us to live. Amen.